Hello, this is Jeff Otis, Senior Wealth Consultant and Partner at Evergreen GovCal, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. Today, I interview our CEO, Tyler Hay, and go in a little bit different direction. I really want to give listeners a deeper dive into who is Evergreen, what's the background of Evergreen, uh, what's the evolution of Evergreen, and what is Evergreen today, and finish it with where is Evergreen headed. So this podcast is going to be nearly an hour, maybe a little over an hour. Uh, So much, much deeper dive into our firm, our firm's history and where we're headed. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So as always, thanks for listening. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right, we got Evergreen CEO Tyler Hay back with us today for the EVA edition of our Coffee with Evergreen. And Tyler, thanks for being here. No problem, Jeff. Happy to do it. The last Coffee with Evergreen we did with our senior analyst, Garman Howell, we went in a little bit different direction. I wanted to give listeners some insight into how we build portfolios, uh, kind of what our research process is like. I thought it was nice uh, or, you know, helpful for listeners to kind of be able to see under the hood, you know, behind the curtain of Evergreen. So I want to do something similar with you today, uh, but it's going to talk more about our firm, the history of our firm, uh, you know, where we've been, where, you know, where we've come from, where we're at and where we're headed. uh, you know, right from right from uh, the CEO's mouth. So I hope you're ready for this. I'm ready. I think I know where where the firm came from. I hope so. Since I've been here, it's been almost 14 years. I mean, it's it's been pretty incredible. Uh, you know, under your leadership, the the firm's grown. I think from something like 350, you know, 400 million under management to nearly like three three and a half billion under management. So you must be doing something right. Something. I don't know what. Something's right. Well, let's talk about that. So let's start with where, we, where we've been. So, you know, back up, let's put this thing in reverse. Let's take listeners who maybe have just learned about us, you know, figured, you know, just discovered us through, uh, you know, through online search or through a friend, you know, maybe doesn't know the history of Evergreen. So let's start, let's start with, you know, where was Evergreen? You know, what's kind of like the, uh, the genesis of Evergreen? Back it up like 20 years, 20, 30 years, if you want. Sure. So, Evergreen, as people know it today, really started in 2003 or maybe 2001, and that was when Dave Hay, my father, left Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. It was actually just Smith Barney at the time. It's now Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. And he went and joined uh, Evergreen and brought his client book with him at that time. Kind of an interesting and cool story about how he got to that point is rewinding time and thinking about how he started building his business. And and he really did it the old fashioned way. He would cold call and he was he got a little smart and figured out that the better way than just going through the phone book and cold calling people was to get a country club Rolodex because those people were pre-qualified. So he got his hands on some local country clubs, which he probably doesn't want me saying the names of um, on the podcast, but he got his hands on some uh, country club rosters and he started calling through it and he, you know, built it the old fashioned way. And he started as a broker at Dean Witter in the eighties. And a lot of people probably don't even remember this, but you know, because today we think about investing, like you log on to, you know, a website, you play, press a couple of buttons. The next thing you know, you own Microsoft or Amazon or whatever. 
But back in those days, you couldn't just place trades on your computer. You had to have a broker. And so, you know, brokers were very focused on transactions. They got paid. You know, if you sold Microsoft and you bought GE, that's how they got paid. So very transaction-oriented. They weren't really interested in the quality of advice. They were just interested in the quantity of advice. And also interesting to think back to those times, too, because today we want to read about Amazon. You can, you know, Google it, and there's tons of, you know, tons of ways to do research on the Internet today. Back then, the brokerage houses had a monopoly on the research. So if you wanted to do research on a certain company, you had to have a broker who would send it to you. And so it was a very different world that he came from. And, and he didn't really like the brokerage world because it wasn't paying for advice. It was paying for transactions. And so um, he started getting recruited by Smith Barney at the time, and he was unsure about moving. And one day they called him and said, come over to our office. There's somebody you need to meet. So he came over, walked a couple blocks, and um, goes into a conference room, and the door opens, and there's Sandy Weil sitting there smoking a big stogie. Sandy Weil was the was the president of Citigroup, who owned Smith Barney at the time, and he said, "Son, I was a broker back in the day. Um, what, what you know? What do you think?" And he said, "Well, you know, Mr. Weil, I, I'm, I don't want to be a broker anymore. I want to be a portfolio manager. I want to give clients advice. I want to get paid based on the, you know the size of their account going up or down. I don't want to do transactions anymore." And he looked at him and said, son, I thought it was a good idea when I was a broker. It's a good idea, so we're going to do it. And they created the, what they called the PM program at Smith Barney, and he was the first uh, portfolio manager to go over there. And they, sent, they then built it out with hundreds and hundreds of brokers. And so that was sort of his story of, of how he got into giving advice versus being a broker. And then in 2001, he left Smith Barney and joined what we now know as Evergreen. Okay, I'm going to pause you really quick. Uh, for the listener that maybe didn't capture what you just described in terms of the difference between broker and portfolio manager, can you clarify that? Because that obviously uh, flows into what we do as an RIA, which we'll talk about shortly. So just talk about the differences between the two, just so it's super clear. Well, I mean, I think the easiest way to think about it is if you think about a financial advisor at someone somewhere like J.P. Morgan, right? They have they get compensated in two different ways. They can sell you a mutual fund. They can sell you a life insurance policy. They can sell you a bunch of different things, and they get paid what's called a commission, which is based on a transaction. Um, they also, most of them also do what's called fee-based business, and fee-based business is what we do. It's where you get paid if the client has, say, a million-dollar account, you get paid, say, 1% on that account. If the account goes down to 900000 now you get 1% of 900000 If it goes up to 1.1, you get 1% of a bigger number. So you're very aligned with the client. And, you know, the industry, you know, used to be all brokerage, and now it's moving much, much, much more the other direction where it's mostly fee-based, where, you know, people aren't getting paid for transactions. It, it still surprises me to this day that somebody would want to be at a brokerage house where you don't know whether the, whether the advisor is giving you this advice because they're getting paid, you know, to sell you a product or not to sell your product. And, and in the RA world, we're not allowed, the registered investment world, the evergreen world, we are not allowed legally to collect commissions on transactions. So that that's immediately eliminated from the table when someone's working with us. 
Yeah, we talk about that all the time. I mean, when clients or you know, prospective clients are talking to our firm, I, I mean, we do walk through that in terms of conflict, you know, potential conflicts of interest. You know, it, you know, is the advice in your best interest or in the advisor's best interest, or you know, and then even like the term financial advisor, what does that even mean, right? I mean, so many people, whether you're an insurance salesman, a portfolio manager, whatever, just describe themselves as uh, you know, financial uh, financial advisor, but it doesn't always tell the whole story. All you have to do to become a financial advisor is call yourself one. Right, right. Yeah, pretty amazing. So, okay, then, so that that's good background. But then now, now your dad moves to Evergreen, you know, basically buys Evergreen. This is 2001, 2002, 2003. And you're getting in the mix around this time. So like introduce like then how you got involved in the business. I came in shortly thereafter in 2007. But let's talk about Evergreen 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, kind of that period. Yep. So in the early days, I started out as an equity analyst. I was a finance major in college and I graduated and and Dave said to me, why don't you come do some stock research for me until you figure out what you want to do. And so it started just kind of as like a project job and, you know, just being curious and stuff. I started looking around the office and, and wondering different things. And so I'd say to him, you know, this was 2004. It seems like the horse and carriage days, but I said, why don't we have a website? And he said, I don't know, go ask somebody. And went and asked somebody why we don't have a website. I said, oh, you can't do it. it it's, there's compliance, all this stuff. And, and I'm sitting here and think, you know, there are countless examples of, of things that I thought were, were really common sense to be doing from a business perspective. But Dave's focus has always been really just being an investment guy. And so he didn't really want to get too involved in that stuff. And, and I was far too young to have any type of control at the time. So I just sort of went to work doing every job at the company um, that I could get my hands on. So I, you know, whether I was the trader, I was answering phones, I was, you know, paying bills. I, I sort of did all the different jobs and, and hung right. around. And I remember vividly, you know, I've been working um, with my dad now for 17 years and we've probably only had one or two times where things got confrontational and this and one of them happened when in about 2007 he was frustrated with you know some of the operations of the business and felt like the investment stuff was fine but the onerous part of it for him was running a business he just didn't have that interest even though he was you know the largest shareholder at the time and so you know, he felt like I was too young, but he was also very frustrated with a lot of the kind of the business, the operational and the business aspects to the point where he said, you know, I'm ready to sell this. This is too frustrating. I don't want to solve those things. I'm an investment guy. I can't solve it. This is so bad. And and I said, you know, I said, well, if it can't get any worse, dad, you know, give me a chance to run it. And if, if in a year it doesn't get better, then, you know, you already said it can't get worse, so then you can sell it at that point. And so that sort of was um, what caused him to take a leap of faith at a time where I was probably too young to be given the responsibility. But um, I was a little bit lucky that he he didn't have any any other options. So what were some of your decisions then? Like walk us through what you saw, what you thought should change, because sometimes it helps with fresh 
uh, fresh perspective, right? Things, you know, oftentimes in our business, you know, you get in these habits of like, oh, we've all, we've always done it that way, right? Uh, but does it make sense anymore to do it that way? So I guess, you know, around that time, right, I'm, I'm joining the firm and, you know, we're starting to grow from a team of what, five or six to all of a sudden 10 to then 15, 20, 30, you know, so walk us through what some of those early decisions were with, you know, kind of maybe you in charge. Sure, sure. So just before I was in charge, I remember we were maybe a seven person firm, maybe six. And maybe you yep. remember this meeting. I'm not sure if you were at the firm at, at, at the time. And we went into a conference room and um, the person who was working or who was running the company at the time had had read a book that was had a kind of a moment in time where everybody was talking about it, it was called 212 degrees. And the person <laughs> the person got up in front of um, in front of all of us and said, hey, look, you, you know, do you, do you know the difference between 186 degrees and 212? And somebody said, yeah, the water boils at 212 degrees. And and we, again, we were seven people managing 400 million. And this person said, we're going to a billion dollars. And I just remember looking up and just my jaw dropping, thinking, you know, it's not going to be, we're not at 186 and we need to get to 212. We're at like 50 degrees and we need to get to 212. And and mm-hmm. it just seemed like a billion dollars seemed unattainable. We were never going to get there. It just seemed like how could we possibly find $600 million in, in new assets? And so that sticks out as a vivid memory to me thinking we, it's not going to take, you know, subtle around the edges, you know, hey, we're close to boiling water. We were a long ways away. And so I think that we did at that at, when I when I sort of got got the reins, I think we did sort of three things that I think really drove Evergreen's growth, both to that point and still to this day. The first one was we we really uh, changed the people that we had at the at the firm. We really increased the the quality and made them and really molded people into you know what we wanted them to be. And you know I guess uh, maybe a simpler way of saying this is you think about our business and the biggest pet peeve I have is someone will say well, give me your elevator speech. How do you guys, what's your value proposition? And to me, it's like, you know, someone's asking you to spend, you know, an elevator speech was that 30 seconds where you're supposed to explain what you do that's different. I like to think that what people, that what we do for people um, takes more than 30 seconds to explain. And so um, our, you know, our value add, in my opinion, is really the the quality of people that we're putting in front of our clients. I mean, that, that to me is first and foremost is without quality people, you cannot have, you know, you don't have a quality firm. The second I do remember along did, those lines, Hey, uh, along those lines, yep, yep. I remember there being a bit of like a role clarification, you know, like, like a clear, like, Hey, this is the way we're going to build the structure of our team and who's going to do what so that there wasn't so much overlap. Cause you know, before that there was a lot of everyone wearing a lot of hats, right? Wouldn't you say that that was part of that? Well, maybe another way of saying that is most firms are built with a stable of advisors wearing two hats. They call people, wish them happy birthday, check in on their kids, do the client relationship side. And then, you know, the other half of the day, they're supposed to be running portfolios. And we thought that that was not the best way to structure a firm. So what we did is we created an investment team whose job was to focus nonstop on the investments and the strategies. And then we created a relationship team whose job was to go out and find those clients and plug them into the appropriate strategy. So we really segmented the the job function so that both people could be special 
specialists, you know, in their own in their own areas. And that's a little different than how a lot of firms are structured uh, still to this day. But going back to another thing that I think that we did is we really wanted to demystify, you know, investing to clients and um, prospects and meetings. You know, I think that so often when a financial advisor sits down with a client or prospective client, they feel like their job is to, you know, sound smart, use a bunch of complicated concepts and technical jargon and really like, you know, wow, this guy must be smart because he's saying stuff that I don't know. Something that, you know, I think that we've really, we've really tried to, to, to do something different. You know, I, I give the analogy of, you know, we used to, and then, you know, maybe we were guilty of this early on was, you know, somebody would come in looking for a watch and instead of saying, are you looking for a sports watch? Are you looking for something fancy? You know, we would start explaining to them how watches work and, you know, the components and what, what you know, makes them tick and all this stuff. And really, that wasn't what the person was coming for. They were coming because they, you know, they had something in mind that they wanted. And, you know, instead of working with them to find the right watch for them, we'd start explaining how watches work in general. And I think the industry still does that, um, but we've really moved away from, from that and tried to make it really approachable for people. Yep. And then the last thing that I think that, we, that we've done, and especially as we've grown and um, we've been able to be more selective in terms of who we work with as clients. I think that when you're young and you're growing as a firm, you know, there's no such thing as a bad client. And then you get you know, a little bit larger, you get a little bit more experience and you realize that's not true. Right. And, and right. if you, if you, if you get a client, that's not a good fit at the end of the day, it works out bad for them and it works out bad for you. And so what we really try to do now is we really try and identify clients that, you know, align with our philosophy that, you know, vibe with, with whoever they're working with at the firm. And if that doesn't happen, we just say early on in the process before they've even signed up, Hey, look, you're not a great fit for us. You know, there's another firm down the shop and that's really helped us to, you know, because so much of our time, if you have a client where, where, you know, or even a, a marriage that's not going well, there's so much, you know, wasted energy in, t in terms of trying to, you know, maintain a, a relationship that seems to be broken. And it's just really, really um, taxing on all parties. And so as we've, as we've grown, I think we've gotten a lot better at, at finding the right types of clients um, for us and, and being the right firm for, for the client. Yeah, no, I think that's key. I mean, definitely early on, you know, it was like if anyone was willing to take a meeting with us, you know, we were ready to go, right? But it reminds me so much of, you know, the Husky fan in me, you know, after years of Chris Peterson at the helm, right, where he was always talking about OKGs, you know, trying to recruit their kind of guys. And it was always about fit, uh, looking for good players, but really fit their the, kind of their culture. I think it's no different here in terms of in terms of what we're doing. Talk a little bit about the migration from being what was was kind of just an asset manager. You know, when I joined Evergreen, you know, we were really just an asset manager only. We hadn't added the, you know, the planning services and then recently more the uh, the tax services. But just like talk about the evolution of Evergreen from maybe asset manager alone to then becoming maybe more full service wealth management and 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 the reasons for that. Sure. I mean, I think that a lot of firms when they start out you know, you start out small, you think of a, of a restaurant, you know, a mom and pa restaurant where, you know, they're busting tables, they're, they're hiring staff, they're cooking, they're doing all those things. Right. 
you know, there's no, you know, they have to operate with a pretty limited menu. If you cook way too many things and you're trying to do all those other, you know, all those other functions as a, as a restaurant, the food's probably not going to be very good. So you have to operate with probably a pretty limited menu of your go-to recipes. And I think the same was true and is true for firms that are small. They have to stick with what they know and that's certainly what we did. Um, fortunately, the benefit of growth is you're able to expand um, what you do for people, both from an investment perspective and a services perspective. And for us, that was adding things like financial planning, adding things like estate guidance, adding a tax arm, which we've we, we've done recently and, you know, adding alternative investments. You just can't do those things as a small firm. You know, that is a limitation that you're, you know, if you're small and you do well and you grow, then you can obviously add those things and become a little bit more of a, a full service package to, to the client. But you have to start out small and, and do well. You know, you kind of got to walk before you run. I will. I, I did want to I did want to touch on I told you kind of the things that we did that I think made the firm better, you know, adding, you know, adding the right people, making good hires, you know, demystifying investing to people and, and, and being selective about the clients we choose. But I'd say that there's also been some things that we haven't done as well. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, you just touched on was one of them, which was when you're small, you have to stay, you know, your, your resources are limited. And so one of the things I think early on that we struggled with was just offering enough services and enough you know, enough investment strategies to people, you know, so I think that early on we were limited and that was um, a bit of a headwind. And I think the other thing that's a, it's kind of a, a embarrassing headwind in some ways has been um, that we've really under cultivated our client referrals. And part of the reason I say that is, you know, the that's the main driver of firms like ours growth, something like 60% of, of new asset growth, um, you know, based on industry surveys comes from your existing client base. And we haven't done a good job at that. And it's, it's a little bit perplexing because at the same time, our client retention is very strong and our outside business growth. So not referrals, but, you know, business that we attract, you know, from the outside world has also been very strong. And so, you know, that's definitely been something that we've, you know, and I, and I think frankly, it comes from, you know, the people that have relationships with our clients, just not wanting to make it awkward. And so that still remains a challenge that, that I think that we haven't, that we haven't cracked is, is how to, to take a happy client and make them a referring client. And so hopefully that's something that we, we get better at. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I said, I've been here for 14 years. I remember the days, you know, 2000, even 2007, 8, 9, 10, I mean, that was an interesting time to join the industry. But I do remember the days where we would put on these presentations, right? We like invite a ton of people to, a, you know, a winery or the Bellevue Club or whatever, and you, we would pitch our investment strategies. It was like, hey, we're going to tell you about this income strategy that we manage. And like, you know, everyone listen in because it's pretty good. And then clients would say, hey, you know, that sounds interesting. You know, uh, what's your minimum? You know, like, uh, let me carve off like a part of my portfolio and I'll run it in that approach. And then, you know, you, you look at it today and it's like, we set off people and they're kind of like, look, here's where I'm at. This is what I'm trying to do. And, and it's a much more comprehensive in terms of being more custom 
it's not just about this strategy or that strategy. Like, how do we help guide you with this whole thing? Uh, you know, from just a, you know, from a tax perspective, an investment perspective, you know, eyes on insurance planning, estate planning. I mean, the whole the whole uh, gamut. So um, it definitely feels well, like the value a, a that point. we provide. To, yeah. So go ahead. It's a good point. I mean, it's it, it sort of you know, it's sort of it sort of is interesting because firms like ours really came from two different backgrounds. Either you were somebody who was a really good investor and you had an expertise in managing stocks or managing bonds, maybe both. Um, and then at the same time, this is maybe 20 years ago. Um, you know, there was a lot of, a lot, there were a lot of financial planning firms who were, who would do a financial plan for $2,000 and they'd figure out that, uh, you know, a client should be invested overall in this fashion and they'd run a financial plan figure out when they were going to retire how much money they made and they they paint this overall picture for the client which was really helpful and a really good glide path for the client to think about their future and then that client would take that financial plan they'd walk down the street to somebody who specialized in investments and they'd say the financial planner just did this for me here's how i think i should be invested can you build me this portfolio and of course the you know the person who specialized in investments would would say sure i can do this and firms start like ours start looking around saying well why are these processes happening at two different locations. We can certainly do financial planning. And and while financial planning is super important and it's a part of our process, you know, I happen to think that, that managing the investments over a 30 or 40 year period is is really where, you know, the sausage is made. Um, and so you yeah. had this kind of world where financial planners tried to become investment people and investment people tried to integrate financial planning and, you know, I guess the you know we've definitely been one of those firms that that have assimilated both into our our process and the firms you know I think that that's definitely been a winning formula. I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen in my interactions with clients is 10 years ago you would have clients that were a bit more apprehensive on sharing the information of their full financial picture with you. You know, they just wanted to talk about what they did with Evergreen as a silo, you know, and and yet now we're at a point where like if you're going to work with somebody, why wouldn't you want the why wouldn't you want the advisor and the portfolio manager to have eyes on everything to be able to guide you through what really makes sense, you know, like I don't think it should just be up to the client to like choose the strategy, right? I mean, isn't that isn't isn't that really where we come in where we're looking at the whole picture, we're mapping things out, we're looking at projections, like cash flow projections over the next 2, 3, 4 decades. And we're like, "Hey, you know, I I know that you want the most growth you can get with the least amount of risk that you can assume, but like let's really think this through from a more strategic uh you know from a more strategic stance on what strategies make sense for you versus which ones don't you know you would would you agree with all that yeah i mean i might give another analogy which is you know it's kind of like you think of the owner of a football team you know the owner of the football team really should hire someone that's going to make the the coaching decisions you know hire a coach and that coach then hires you know an offensive coordinator defensive coordinator and you know you you'd think that an owner of a team would realize that that's probably not where they live and breathe whether it's a, you know let's just say it's football they're not an expert in football and so they delegate that decision making down well you know you're right i think that there are a lot of people even still to this day who want to be the owner and then they want to be the head coach of their team and and i just think that i think that the the clients that we've worked well with have have had the realization of this isn't my 
my full-time job. This isn't what I do for a living, you know, and so I am delegating to you. I want to make sure that we, you know, that we philosophically agree, but from there, you know, I want you guys to take over and I'll never forget sitting, you know, since we're throwing, you know, throwback stories around. I remember sitting in our conference room and we're meeting with, um, husband and wife and the wife was a really really successful residential real estate agent and she was really the primary breadwinner and the husband was a pilot flew for you know one of the you know alaska or united i don't remember exactly and so we're talking about this investment stuff and and how we're going to help them and how we think we can help them and they said that's really interesting and she looked over at him and said what do you think and he said you know Heard a lot about what you said, but you know, I think, I think I can do that stuff on my own. And I remember, you know, at the time, um, I, 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 not sure that I would have had the self restraint today, or I'm not sure I have the self restraint today that I had back then. But I didn't say anything. But the thought that I had was at the time, imagine me being, you know, on an airplane, thirty six thousand feet up, and walking the cockpit and being like. Yeah, yeah, I, I see the handle there, the throttles there. You know, I think I'll probably just take this from here and, and I'll go ahead and land this thing. And, you know, it, it right. sounds, I'm being a little bit funny, but it, it does speak to, and it's only going more this direction where it's becoming easier and easier to be your own pilot of your investments. You know, a lot of this is technology driven. And so I think that because we, we've made it so easy that people maybe don't appreciate that they can still crash their financial plane, you know, uh, that they probably would, right? I mean, it, it's not, it, it is a full-time job. I and mean, we have analysts and people working, you know, seven days a week, um, especially when you count our, our research team um, at GovCal and, and people that are dedicated, that's all they do is read about financial markets, read about stocks, read about bonds, and how somebody could, could compete with that, you know, on a hobby basis, it, you know, still blows my mind. Well, and I'll even add to that. I mean, I'll just talk about myself personally really quick, and then we're going to move on. Uh, I mean, I work full-time at Evergreen, and my investment accounts are run by Evergreen. Like, even I, even though I work at a wealth management firm, I don't have the time to manage my own investments like our portfolio managers do. So, I mean, you would think, of course, I know what we're doing and what we're investing in and all that, but, like, I'm so busy in meetings with clients all day or on the phone or, or, or you know, Zoom calls or whatever it is, I don't have time to carve off and, and go invest my own money. And I even work at a wealth management firm. So uh, anyways, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I want to talk about the GovCal piece because I don't want to skip over that. I think that was a that was a, a key uh, move that you, that, that you were involved in. So can we talk about that and maybe just what that provides to us as a firm? And then I want to summarize how that then establishes like the evergreen of today. And then we're going to go to where we're headed. So talk about the GovCal piece. Sure. So to this point, I mean, GovCal, for people that don't know, is a macroeconomic research provider. They sell their research to some of the biggest hedge funds, the biggest endowments, the biggest financial institutions, you know, in the world. And they get paid a lot of money to provide this insight, you know, at both the macro level. So that's, you know, a very high level, which countries are attractive, what's happening with currencies, what's happening with interest rates. And people pay them a lot of money for their their opinions. And, and we were fortunate enough to build a relationship with their CEO. And we thought, and, and they, we got along great. And 
you know, they had interest in taking a minority stake in our business. And in exchange, we were going to get access to their research, to their ideas, to their, you know, intellectual capital. And we just thought it was too good of a opportunity to turn down for our clients. And, and we really thought that it would differentiate us in terms of having, you know, kind of a deeper level of investment knowledge than, than our competitors. What I was thinking, and then in terms of what's happening today, I'm going to touch on that just really quick. You know, with uh, you know, with looming threats of higher corporate tax rates, higher uh, you know, uh, capital gains tax rates. Uh, you know, our belief is that there may be opportunities uh, for making good money overseas, given just what's happening in the U.S. Not to say that we're just abandoning all any you know our U.S. and base investments, but having a global research partner that has in, like deep, deep. Uh, uh, you know, insights into Asia, Europe, I think that really helps, um, you know, from a, from a value add right now in terms of the well, next five to 10 years. I would agree with that. And I would even go a step further and say, not only do clients should, should investors, you know, be thinking about things like, well, should, you know, what areas of the world should I be invested in? That, that's certainly one important question. And we lean right. heavily on GovCal to help us answer that question. And, and we are a firm that's equipped. Um, as I was talking about, as you get bigger, you get more resources. And so we are equipped to invest internationally. Um, some people are super attracted to that. Some people are not as attracted. I also think that the current interest rate environment that we're in a low, a, you know, a low yield world also forces, it's forcing people to reevaluate how they manage, you know, investments in, in a world where, you know, interest rates are so low. And I think that, you know, a lot of financial advisors have been pretty lazy about how they manage fixed income. They would, you know, basically ladder bond portfolios, which means, you know, buy a two-year bond, three-year bond, four-year bond, five-year, six-year, seven-year. As one comes due, you just add it to the end, and you just keep recycling these bonds, and it's pretty, you know, it's pretty brainless, um, and it's worked because bonds have been in such a long bull market. But today, you're being forced to figure out different ways to invest your income, and Evergreen has kind of responded to that in two ways. One is we're lucky that we've never managed bonds in that kind of or fixed income in that kind of brainless fashion. We've we've owned a bunch of different securities types in the income world, whether that be preferreds, REITs, master limited partnerships. We've always used a bunch of tools within the, the income in, within the income world, and so a lot of a lot of um, advisors are being forced to learn that on the fly. Whereas that's something that we've done, which I think helps, you know, differentiate us. And then secondly, I think that, you know, we talk that we're talking just now about the fixed income world, but also the, you know, the equity world is, is pretty expensive. Stocks are expensive. They're certainly not cheap. And so I think investors are looking at this saying, okay, well, bonds aren't very appealing. Stocks aren't very appealing. So what do I do? And one of the answers is you invest in private markets. And this is a world that's been totally out of reach for the average investor because the the minimums to invest in in private funds has been very very high and people couldn't participate and so one of the things that we've spent a big chunk of the last covid year doing is is finding ways to use our collective client assets to gain access by pooling assets together and get our clients into these types of, of private investments where we think the return outlook is is, is much better than public markets. 
Yeah, so let me summarize at the evergreen of today, and you can add in any additional color that you think I missed. But, you know, I always describe evergreen of today. You know, like this, I think it's been helpful. We spent, I don't know how long it's been, you know, 30, 40, 45 minutes talking about where we've been, what we've added, but, you know, kind of like what is the position today? So I always talk about evergreen as like a stool with three legs, you know, three, the three prong approach of asset management, financial planning tax services, right? Those are the three. On the planning side, we've got an in-house team of, of certified financial planners that do a fin- phenomenal job on the planning side, whether it's guiding uh, people for setting up for retirement, uh, you know, obviously in retirement, cash flow projections, uh, you know, what to do about selling real estate, you know, side-by-side analysis on all that, asset mix, growth rates, you know, income, expenses, budget, everything that you'd think of uh, from a planning perspective, we can, we can do. We, we, help, we help guide people people through the estate planning process, um, but ultimately work with, uh, you know, local resources for, for the completion of any of that. But really, like anything from a planning perspective, we're able to do on the on the uh, tax services side. Now that we've got Evergreen Sterling Cooter as our tax arm, I mean, all full tax services. So tax review, tax planning, um, tax filing, I mean, really for individual corp, corp, uh, corporations, anything that you would need uh, from a tax side, we, we can now solve for, which I think is really key. And then on the asset management side, maybe just to summarize, the strategies we run, I mean, they're, they're dynamic and tactical. In most cases, are using individual stocks and bonds, which is unique. I, you know, if we had more time, I'd love to talk about that versus the way many money managers, uh, you know, invest funds. But so many of our strategies are built with individual securities, individual stocks, individual bonds, individual REITs, individual preferreds, uh, you know, in terms of how we, how we build things out and not just U.S., right? So the GovCal piece gives us tremendous access and insight to, you know, making making plays internationally and what markets to be in, what, you know, in some cases, maybe individual positions. Um, and then we've extended not just the public market options for clients, but now we have, you know, our, you know, a couple private options th- that we've extended into. So from like an asset management perspective, it's so deep and wide. It's so, it's so customizable for clients uh, in terms of, uh, you know, whether they, they're looking for growth, whether they're looking for income, whether they want to be more aggressive, more conservative, something more moderate, more U.S more international like we can really kind of do almost anything on the investment side uh you know public private etc so in addition to that and we haven't really talked about family office is probably uh something we could talk about in a separate podcast uh but is there anything that you think i missed in terms of the evergreen of today well i might talk about evergreen in terms of our competitors and who we really compete with and one you know i think i try to make it simple for for the listeners and clients, you know, we compete with the, the brokers that we talked about originally, the, the guy that's at JP Morgan or UBS. And, you know, those, frankly, while their, their advantage, um, their advantage is they have a household name, UBS, JP Morgan, a lot of people have heard of. And so they get very, you know, people are comfortable with that. Um, but people also remember the financial crisis and, and they, and they just, really do not like the conflict of interest and the lack of transparency that you have in working with a broker. Are they getting paid on this? Or are they not getting paid? How are they getting paid? Where is this advice coming from? And so brokers, you know, while they have, you know, the big bank behind them, they're generally not that difficult to compete with because clients can easily grasp those conflicts that you've talked about. And I mean, we, we just to put a, a bow on that, I mean, Brokers aren't even held to the same 
legal standard that an REA is. We're held to a more scrupulous legal standard. They're held to a lower standard, which just seems like if you're if you're someone who doesn't know this stuff inside now and you're like, wait, they're held to a higher legal standard to act in my best interest. They're held to a lower one. Don't I just want to immediately eliminate the one that's not held to the higher one? So brokers aren't that tricky to compete with because of those those they just have so many you know, headwinds that, that make sense to clients. However, I would say the one area that, that is challenging competing with um, the brokers or the what in our industry we call wirehouses, but it's it's your brand name financial advisor, is oftentimes a client will stay with a, a broker or financial advisor, not because they're in love with how they do for them, you know, on, on their personal assets, but they'll stay with them because they're banking, their business banking relationships come from, you know, the bank itself. So Wells Fargo might be lending money, you know, for them to buy a business or buy a building or something. And so they really use their banking relationships as a way to kind of, you know, (laughs) trap, if you will, that client there. And so, um, but brokers, aside from those situations, which are, you know, not that often where they have a commercial banking relationship, brokers are generally not the stiffest competition. Then we have smaller RAAs, firms like us, you know, same legal standard, but they're smaller and they suffer from the limitations that you were talking about that we had when we were smaller. And you touched on this a little bit. It's hard to have a bunch of different portfolio offerings when you're a small firm, like we're talking about with the Ma and Pa restaurant. You can only cook so many items when you're, you know, a small restaurant. Same thing with a smaller firm. So, you know, those, again, not not the stiffest competition, um, though the ones that do it well will eventually grow, expand their services and become, you know, kind of more heavyweight competitors. Then there's large RAs like ours. That's where there's the stiffest competition. And you know, they can offer many of the same services. Not all of them have, you know, the full suite that I think that we've really worked hard to build out. Not all of them are one-stop shops for clients, but they're close. Uh, Many of them are close. And at that point, it really comes down to relationship. Who does, you know, if two firms are both capable, who do you want to work with? And that's where I talked about the people earlier. What's your quality of people? And, And that then becomes that differentiator. And so I would say when you come when you talk about the large firms, there's large firms that have really built themselves up, pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and become, you know, real firms. And then there's other firms that that look big, but behind the scenes, they're really managing one or two families, a huge chunk of their money. And then they've slowly decided that they want to enter into, you know, the the world of of landing new clients and so they're really not they're really not competitors they're just they they look like it because they're big in size but they're really only managing one or two families money okay so let's talk about where we're headed uh, and then we'll, we'll yep. sum, you know as a final question okay. where's the industry headed where's Evergreen's you know kind of foothold in that and positioning towards you know the the wealth management space five ten fifteen years out okay. if a client's if if a client's like Hey, I'm not going to hire you based on what you've done. I'm hiring you based on what you're, you know, what you're going to do. Why would they decide on mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's a good question, and it's something that I obviously think a lot about, right? Where are we going to be in in 10 years and 20 years? And and I guess I'd start with I'd say three things on this. I'd say one, let's talk about technology. You have this fascinating, almost dichotomy where 
a lot of financial advisors came from Wall Street, right? They came from an investment background, and they know investments really, really well, and they're probably pretty skilled at it. That's sort of like the financial people. But what you also have happening right now is you have a bunch of tech people saying, looking at this world and saying, yeah, you might be really, really good at investing, but you know what you really suck at is you really are not very good at making it easy on people, whether that's to open accounts, whether that's to view their accounts, whether that's to interact with their advisor. And so the, the technology people are saying, you guys are really good investments, but you really haven't figured out what investors want their user experience with their advisor to be like going forward. So they started solving for that. And guess what? There was a massive blind spot for you know, people of, of a financial background that really ignored technology and thought that it wouldn't really matter. And today, people do, it does matter. And so you have the tech people who don't have a ton of financial background, but are really good at making the experience what investors want, and, and yet they lack the financial expertise and the financial sophistication to build you know, things that might work for a $10 million or $5 million or $3, even a $3 million client. And so what are they doing? They're, you know, they're the Robin Hoods of the world opening up $15,000 accounts for someone that's 26-year-old to day trade his account. And can you make, you know, this, and they're figuring out that while they're having a lot of success in, in making it easy for people, that there's not a ton of money in the $15,000 26-year-old. So they're moving upstream and they're trying to figure out ways to offer more complex financial solutions for people. And yet you have the people with the complex financial tools already, the finance people who are thinking, oh my God, it's, re- it's, it's happening. We need to make our technology more relevant. And so I would say that I'm very focused on figuring out ways to accelerate you know, the arms race that, that we're facing and get better at technology and make it easier for people to interact with us, open accounts, you know, all the things that we've talked about, but make it, make it easier. So I think technology yep. is definitely one of them. I also see a world, you know, we touched on this where, you know, investors are going to, you know, some of it is a function of the environment. We talked about it. Stocks are expensive. Bonds pay nothing. Investors like private investments. They like alternative investments. However, they've largely been out of reach. I talked about the example of us being able to pool our client assets. I mean, imagine trying to pool client assets 20 years ago. You know, say that you're an investor and you want to participate in Silver Lake Fund One, whatever it was, 20 years ago, and the minimum investment is $5 million. As an investor, you and you don't have that $5 million, you have to get on the phone and call friend after friend after friend until you get $5 million. And it's incredibly arduous, too complex, too, you know, people just said, screw it, I'm not going to deal with that. Well, today, with the benefit of technology, there are firms out there that are, are coming up with ways to allow investors with smaller minimums to participate in these larger type funds. And so I think that there is going to be a continued shift in interest into the private investment world. And I think that, that you know, that's something that we've spent a lot of our time working on bringing to our client base. You touched on this, too. The last thing I think that people are going to want is they want simplicity. The world's like more and more complex. It's more and more, you know, there's so many different things that people are worried about and they have going on in their lives. People want simplicity. And, you know, what we're really trying to solve for is when you have a financial need, you know, and, and say you're going to sell your house and, and you're not sure who, you know, who should I use a real estate agent or who should I use to get a mortgage? You know, in the past, 
you know, clients would say, okay, well, now I got to find, first I got to find a realtor, then I got to find a mortgage broker, then I got to call my financial advisor and ask him how much house I can afford and what makes sense, all this stuff. So they make three different phone calls. And really what we're trying to do and what I think we've done successfully is we're that first phone call. We're who you call whenever something in your financial life is changing. You call us, we can help you find a realtor. We can tell you what type of mortgage best fits you. We can tell you how much house you you can afford. We can tell you if your financial life has changed in a positive way and now you can afford more house and help you find maybe a real estate agent that's in a different league than you were using before. All as you as you grow and evolve as a client, we want, you know, we want to put ourselves in position to be doing, you know, to be that first phone call for anything financial related. So you're not a quarterback of all these financial professionals. You call one financial professional who serves as that quarterback. The one thing I would add to the simplicity part is transparency. I think clients are really attracted in 2021 to transparency and seeing exactly what you own, seeing exactly what you pay. I think for so long it was sort of like, oh yeah, I'm invested. You know, I don't really know how it's invested. I don't really know what I'm paying. You know, I, I couldn't really tell you. Uh, I don't even know where to look. But I, yeah, I'm making money and think you know markets are going well. Now I, I see more and more uh, investors really like drilling into how are this, the portfolio constructed? What do I own? And, you know, you work with a firm like us, you see all of your own individual positions. Nothing's hidden behind funds, right? There's no like hidden costs of expense ratios that you have to worry about. And so, uh, and then you know, and you see. Each individual trade, that's 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 not hidden. So I think clients really like being able to track it more closely, see exactly what's going on. Everything's fully transparent, and uh, you know I think that and and, and obviously yeah, I, I would agree with you on the simplicity side as well. I don't disagree on the transparency side. I guess I would make two comments on that. One is I would say that that, that I would put that in the past category, or, or I guess I would call that the present category, meaning that's something that people today are becoming more aware of and more conscious of. And, and But I would also say still to this day, I cannot tell you how often a client comes in and we ask them what they're paying and they and generally they say one of two things. I don't know, right? I hear that a lot. I don't know right. how to figure it out. Right. Or they tell you what they're paying and you then look at the statements and you come up and you say, I don't think you I think you miscalculated. They, they, they don't you know, they think they know, but it's typically wrong. I mean, that happens all the time. Almost. I would say out of, you know, if 10 clients walked in the door and you asked them what they're paying, one in 10 actually knows actually what they're paying. So right. I agree with you that, that being, you know, transparent is is important. Um, in today's world and will be in the future. So I would say this. I mean, we've gone an hour, I think, uh, longer than I than I thought we would, but I thought this was really helpful for us to dive through, like, who is Evergreen? You know, what's the background of Evergreen? How, with Tyler's leadership at Evergreen specifically, kind of what have been the moves that we've made? How have we, you know, navigated and graduated into maybe new services, a more complete firm uh, in 2021 versus where we were in 2004, 2007, 2013, whatever, right? So should you be listening to this? Should you be like, oh man, I would love to know how that would apply to me, right? Like I would love to know if I, like, if I were to work with Evergreen, how does that, you know, for me, how does that look? Am I the right fit? You know, like, what would you do with my strategies? You know, what what would my financial plan look like if you were to build it out? We do all that. I mean, you can you can sit down with us. We can put that all together. We can show you the way it would look. We can talk about 
uh, alignment, you know, from our view, like if, if we think you're the right fit or not, uh, you can obviously kind of vet us to see if you think we're the right fit for you or not. But we do those type of meetings all the time. So if you're, if you're ready for that as a next step, you know, feel free to, there's going to be links posted in the, in the podcast that you can click on. You can just respond to the email that you're getting uh, and say, you know, I'd love to chat with somebody if you could, if you could schedule a meeting and we can walk you through that. So I'm not doing a bonus question today because I already got an hour from you, Tyler, but thanks for all of your time. Thanks for being willing to go into the deep end on this for those that are interested. And if you're still listening, uh, congratulations on, on the hour, you know, appreciate spending an hour together. Sorry, it went longer than you were hoping for. No, I loved it. It was great. It was perfect. I think people are really going to like this. So, um, you, you should you know, pick next- a guest that talks less next time. <laughs> well, uh, next time we'll go back to, you know, normal coffee with Evergreen, 10 minute, 15 minute, whatever it is. But I wanted to do a much longer version of that as a, as a kind of an Eva version of this. And, um, you know, uh, have a great weekend. Thanks, Jeff. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.